0: Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goli, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we'll talk about the management of infants of diabetic mothers. We're joined by Dr. Rushman Savani, who's the chief of the Division of Neonatal Perinatal Medicine here at UT, UT Southwestern. Dr. Savani, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So in the U.S., about 1 to 3% of pregnant women are diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And out of all babies born, about 0.5 to 4% are born to diabetic mothers. To start off with, can you explain to us the different classifications of maternal diabetes?
1: Sure. The obstetricians, and Dr. White in particular, uh, developed a classification process for mothers with diabetes. We know that mothers that are pregnant produce a hormone called human placental lactogen, which causes insulin insensitivity. So just the mere fact of being pregnant can make you uh, diabetic. Uh, So this is called gestational diabetes, and uh, the first two uh, slots in White's classification are class A1, which is uh, diabetes only happening during pregnancy, and that can be controlled by diet alone. Whereas class A2 is gestational diabetes, diabetes that only occurs during pregnancy, but requires insulin. So these are the mildest forms of diabetes during pregnancy, if you will. The following sets of classifications in White's classification is uh, the duration of maternal diabetes. So mom already has insulin-dependent diabetes, and it depends on how long that diabetes has gone on and that is classes B, C, and D, where uh, mothers who have uh, onset later than 20 years of age uh, and duration less than 10 years uh, will be class B. Uh, Class C is when their duration of diabetes is 10 to 19 years, uh, and the duration has been 10 to 19 years. And class D is uh, where Uh, the onset is less than 10 years of age, and the duration is more than 20. The reason that classification is made is because the longer you have diabetes, the more complications you're going to have. And that leads us to the most severe classifications, which are what I call the phropathies, or the F, G, H, and R. And the reason I say that is now you've got microvascular disease. And it affects a multitude of organs, including the placenta. So you can get renal insufficiency, you can have uh, cardiomyopathy, and you can have retinopathy. And as we'll talk about uh, in a little bit, I think, uh, we'll also see that that microvascular abnormality can affect the placenta as well.
0: So if we talk about the moms for a minute, um, the diagnosis of diabetes during pregnancy has far-reaching consequences for both mom and baby. So it's very important for them to receive appropriate support in pregnancy, including dietitian support. Um, So how can maternal diabetes affect pregnancy and the fetus?
1: Well, the physiology of this is fascinating. It was first described by Peterson a long time ago. Uh, in the normal situation, uh, mother and baby are separated by the placenta, uh, but there is crosstalk between the two through the placenta. Uh, insulin is uh, th- said to not cross the placenta. There is some evidence to refute that, but uh, for the most part, let's take it that insulin doesn't cross the placenta. So then you have a glucose-insulin cycle in the mother and a glucose-insulin and cycle in the baby. And the thing that connects it is the glucose. So, in normal circumstances, maternal glucose gets transported to the baby via glucose transporters. And these glucose transporters are a facilitated transport system, not active, not passive, but a facilitated transport. So that the baby's glucose is slightly higher than the mom's uh, for the most part. Uh, the problems arise when maternal glucose levels go up, maternal diabetes and now the baby's glucose is also increased. And that increased glucose on the baby's side now stimulates the beta cells of the pancreas uh, to hypertrophy and produce insulin to combat this large glucose load that's coming in from the mom. This high glucose and insulin on the baby's side has some downstream effects, which can be that they can produce ketone bodies, they uh, promote the deposition of glycogen, uh, and also um, cause protein modifications with uh, more uh, glycinated products of proteins that can affect their function, and as well as alter gene expression uh, as and promote excess growth uh, in the baby. So all of these are downstream effects, if you will, of the glucose and insulin increase on the baby's side. Now, at the time of birth, of course, uh, the obstetrician comes along and the umbilical cord gets cut, so this massive amount of glucose infusion that the baby was getting disappears, and now what the baby is faced with is no glucose supply from uh, the mother but a hypertrophied beta cell population that's churning out a lot of insulin. And so what you get is immediate hypoglycemia in the baby. Uh, so I think that that Peterson hypothesis has remained a hypothesis because it's very difficult to prove whether it's the glucose or the insulin causing or the trouble or whether it's both. Uh, so it's, uh, it remains a hypothesis, but I think that that fits the physiology of what we observe.
0: And you mentioned some growth complications. Um, What are some things that we see in infants of diabetic mothers?
1: So since there is increased uh, glucose and uh, insulin in the baby's side, uh, insulin is said to be uh, a growth factor for babies. There is some controversy about that, and some people say that there's a contribution from other hormones like insulin, like growth factor, Uh, But, for the most part, let's take for now that insulin is a growth factor. This is increased in uh, diabetic pregnancies, and this is uh, going to promote the growth of the baby uh, to uh, a point that it's in excess of what uh, you should anticipate for the gestational age. Uh, Most of this growth occurs in the third trimester, and uh, what it results in is that you have bigger babies, and that is going to lead to more complications because... Uh, they won't fit in the vaginal con- in the birth canal uh, you can get increased um, c sections and uh, operative deliveries uh, and you can get things like shoulder dystocia so uh, because of the macrosome, you get increased uh, amounts of uh, birth injuries uh, for 25% of the situation We talked about the microvascular abnormalities uh, that occur in diabetes, particularly those more severe types of uh, White's classification. Now the placenta gets affected by microvascular disease and actually fails so that you can get a placental failure and about 25% of these infants end up being small or intrauterine growth restricted, and that actually is a worse Outcome for the baby, because now the baby doesn't even have the glycogen stores to uh, to supply any glucose, and will still have a hypertrophied uh, beta cell mass, so that their hypoglycemia is very profound, and they have long hospitalizations.
0: So, in addition to growth complications, what are some other um, compli- medical complications we can see in these babies?
1: So, we talked about the hypoglycemia and how that works, uh, but Uh, there appears to be an abnormality in the kidneys, both in the mother and the baby, uh, in in, in diabetic pregnancies. And what that results in is a loss of uh, calcium and magnesium in the urine uh, of the baby, so that the baby can actually come out and become hypocalcemic. And that, of course, uh, can lead to uh, tetany and seizures. Now, uh, magnesium is a very interesting hormone, where, uh, a, a, a molecule because it is required uh, for the secretion of parathyroid hormone. Uh, when you don't have magnesium, parathyroid hormone is not secreted, and you cannot mobilize calcium from the bone. So once we are born and the umbilical cord is cut, the supply of calcium goes away and we have a PTH surge that PTH surge counteracts that initial hypocalcemia that every baby gets, and that is blunted in a diabetic pregnancy, so they can have a more profound hypocalcemia. So whenever you're faced with uh, a baby who's an IDM and has hypocalcemia, make sure you check the magnesium as well, because if the magnesium level is not okay, you will not be able to correct that calcium. Uh, Babies can also get respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, Respiratory distress syndrome is really uh, defined as surfactant deficiency. And the critical things in surfactant are phospholipids and uh, specific proteins. And uh, surfactant protein B, for example, is classically required for adequate lung function uh, of surfactant. Both uh, increased sugars uh, as well as increased insulin uh, decrease the production of phospholipids and of surfactant proteins, and so that results in an increased incidence of respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, Transient tachypnea of the newborn is also elevated, not only because you have more C-sections happening with large babies, because the normal birth canal squeeze to get rid of that water is gone. Um, but also uh, the reabsorption of fluid in the lung is controlled by a molecule called ENAC, or um, epithelial sodium channel. This is greatly elevated at the time of birth, uh, and that elevation is blunted in diabetic pregnancies so that they can have a greater incidence of transient tachypnea of the newborn. And uh, if we go down this long list of complications, uh, there's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We we talked about the fact that a high amount of insulin will lead to deposition of glycogen. It's one way of dealing with this excess glucose load uh, to the baby. And so an excess amount of glycogen gets deposited in the septum of the heart. Uh, so that causes uh, a, a sort of a transient cardiomyopathy, if you will. Uh, Sometimes it can be quite severe, and both left and right ventricular outflow tracts are obstructed, and that constitutes a neonatal emergency. Uh, But for the most part, these babies have um, murmurs and uh, would have to be investigated with an echocardiogram. Uh, The other thing that happens uh, to infants of diabetic mothers is that... uh, they have uh, polycythemia. Uh, The mechanism of polycythemia is that uh, all blood cells come from a a single progenitor or stem cell. And it's the influence of uh, specific growth factors that uh, provide the lineage uh, specification of those uh, stem cells. So if you have erythropoietin, you would become a red cell. If you have thrombopoietin, you would become a platelet. And if you have uh, granulocyte or macrophage stimulating factors, you become a white cell or macrophage. And what happens in diabetic pregnancies is that because of that microvascular d- uh, disease we talked about, there is a relative hypoxia. Most fetuses are already hypoxic compared to Rumer, but... Uh, They have a further uh, hypoxia in utero, and that increases the production of erythropoietin so that these babies will have a higher red cell mass when they're born, uh, and they will have relatively limited white cells and platelets. So you can get a thrombocytopenia in infants of diabetic mothers in the same way, at the same time, have polycythemia. And, of course, uh, getting polycythemia also has consequences. Uh, one of these consequences is that um, uh, renal vein thrombosis, because of the increased viscosity in a low-flow system in the renal vein, you now get the chance for clotting to happen. So uh, some babies with uh, that are infants of diabetic mothers have renal vein thrombosis, and you'll get an enlarged kidney, hematuria, and that alerts you to the fact that this might be uh, renal vein thrombosis. Um, having a uh, increased red cell mass, the neonate has a shorter half-life for red blood cells, so now they have more red blood cells, so now they're producing more bilirubin. So infants of diabetic mothers have an increased um, incidence of uh, hyperbilirubinemia. We have to be on the watch out for that. And they usually last longer than just physiologic uh, hyperbilirubinemia. Um, We already talked about the macrosomia and the birth trauma. uh, And there's a nice statistic where there's an exponential increase in the incidence of birth trauma with the lack of control of diabetes. And uh, there's been a great correlation between uh, the level of hemoglobin A1C, for example, and the percent of uh, pregnancies that have uh, birth trauma
0: what can be done to mitigate these risks
1: yeah so obviously good control of uh, the diabetes during pregnancy is absolutely required but I would submit that we actually need to start controlling the diabetes ahead of pregnancy so a mother or a prospective mother who has a diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes should really seek counseling before she gets pregnant uh, so that absolutely optimal control of the diabetes can be present at the time of conception. Uh, one of the things that is more common in infants of diabetic mothers are congenital anomalies. Uh, the most common congenital anomaly, if I ask residents, usually they say caudal regression, Uh, but it's actually VSD, Uh, and the reason it's VSD is because that is the most common congenital anomaly period, Uh, and it just happens to be even more prevalent in uh, diabetic pregnancies. Caudal regression is pathognomonic of uh, diabetes in pregnancy, and that uh, is a uh, profound disorder where you can get a simple coccyx missing or the whole sacrum is missing, But I've seen babies that have like a a mermaid, uh, two legs that are fused, and they have flipper fins uh, for feet. Uh, And so there's a wide spectrum of this caudal regression syndrome uh, that can happen. All of these can be limited if we have good sugar control before uh, conception. But unfortunately, with congenital anomalies in mothers with diabetes, it doesn't go back to uh, the normal population. There's something inherently uh, wrong with uh, mothers with diabetes that then uh, promotes a slight increase in the incidence of congenital malformations, irrespective of the glucose control.
0: So once these babies are born, when we're examining them, what should we pay special attention to?
1: So... um, there's a wide variety of things that, obviously, we need to pay attention to. Insulin, of course, is going to be increased, like we talked about, the Peterson hypothesis. So the most immediate things are the metabolic changes that occur. You have to be on the watch out for uh, glucose, uh, calcium, magnesium, etc. Um, but uh, there are other things that these babies suffer, Uh Research has been done where EEGs were done on babies that were infants of diabetic mothers, and there was a discoordinated EEG pattern in babies for the first few days. And so their suck-swallow is actually affected. So now you can imagine a baby that needs to feed to keep the sugars up, can't feed properly because the suck-swallow coordination is not there, and has a high amount of insulin in the system. So the incidence of hypoglycemia is even further uh, exacerbated so we have to pay attention to whether the baby can uh, suck and swallow probably uh, properly and um, and make sure that we don't have hypoglycemia that may require tube feedings as well as continuous feeds uh, to avoid that hypoglycemia one interesting complication that occurs postnatally is sort of intestinal obstruction uh, the nervous system in the, um, the hindgut, which goes from the distal third of the transverse colon to the anorectal junction, appears to be affected by diabetes in pregnancy so that that system doesn't work and you end up with a small left colon syndrome. And that presents uh, as an intestinal obstruction. The belly is distended, there may be vomiting, there's lack of stooling, etc., and uh, the good thing is that when you do a, a, a barium or, or a contrast enema, uh, that actually resolves the issue. So that you make the diagnosis of small left colon syndrome. When that uh, contrast material gets uh, evacuated, then the the system is back to normal and it's, uh, it's resolved. Uh, so the small left colon syndrome is something we ought to look out for as well.
0: And then what extra precautions can we provide for these infants when they're born?
1: So, surprisingly, you know, we we think of we need to address the glucose right away, but uh, there are studies that show that um, uh, skin to skin time right after birth of infants of diabetic mothers actually decreases the risk of uh, hypoglycemia, which is uh, remarkable. I think Um, it's important to have regular glucose checks, and so. This varies from institution to institution, of course, but uh, glucose should be checked right away at birth and then very frequently until we figure out what the interventions the baby might need and whether we can then start decreasing the frequency of glucose checks. Uh, Usually 12 to 24 hours, we check uh, calcium and magnesium. Uh, And of course, uh, because of the polycythemia risk, you ought to check a hematocrit. The best time to check a hematocrit after birth is around two hours. That's going to be the uh, highest uh, level of hematocrit because of the fluid shifts that happen uh, with birth. And of course, um, if the baby is in the newborn nursery, uh, daily transcutaneous bilirubin checks can be instituted uh, because they will have a higher uh, incidence of hyperbilirubinemia. Uh, It's important to watch how the baby feeds, especially if they're breastfeeding. Lactation consultants should be aware of the fact that this is an infant of a diabetic mother and then pay extra attention to that suck-swallow reflex. Uh, If there's no stool in the first uh, 24 to 48 hours, uh, think about the left colon syndrome. Do we have any evidence of obstruction? Is it worth getting an x-ray to see what the bowel gas patterns are? And does this baby need a contrast enema?
0: So, what should we counsel parents in terms of long-term outcomes for their babies?
1: So, it is known that um, there is a genetic component to diabetes. So, if a mom has uh, insulin-dependent diabetes, the baby is at increased risk of developing um, diabetes uh, in the future. Uh, And so, it's important to counsel the parents to uh, follow regular healthy diets and exercise routines uh, long-term. Um, if hypoglycemia is corrected uh, appropriately, uh, there are, uh, doesn't appear to be long-term neurodevelopmental uh, problems, but hypoglycemia itself, uh, if not appropriately controlled, does lead to future uh, cognitive disturbances, and school-age kids have some deficiencies in for example, math skills uh, in school age that have been associated with the incidence of hypoglycemia during the immediate newborn period. Um, so there's a number of long-term uh, things that can happen. Um,
0: Side note, was that only if it was rapidly corrected, or was that... Yeah,
1: no, no it, it, no, it can happen, but... Regardless. So let me, let me say that last thing again. Um if hypoglycemia is corrected appropriately, there is not an increased risk of neurodevelopmental outcomes that are um, affected long-term. If hypoglycemia is not corrected and you have episodes of hypoglycemia, there is a long-term risk for decreased school activity and school ability, uh, particularly in math, actually. And so it's important to correct the hypoglycemia glycemia. However, one study did actually show that rapid correction of hypoglycemia was also detrimental and led to longer-term neurodevelopmental abnormalities. So it's important to correct the hypoglycemia, but not to overcorrect it or correct it quickly.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. This has been a really great informative discussion about infants of diabetic mothers. To end the episode today, Dr. Savani, what's your favorite part of your work day?
1: <laughs> That's a really tough question, Nita. Um, I enjoy everything that I do. Um, uh, it's always good, like, you never feel like you're at work. Right? So I, I, I have, um, I'm blessed in that way, and I, I love the people that I work with. and Um, it's a chance for all of us to make things so that babies and moms have better outcomes, and we're working very hard to do that, right? Um, On a personal note, I love swimming and reading and um, playing with my golden doodles, so uh, I have a good time with that, too. I love it.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: It's been great, Nita.
0: Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.